class this morning, on, uh, invite you to open up to the gospel according to Mark, chapter 13, is where we'll get our text from this morning. Uh, as you're turning there, uh, let me open up with a word of prayer. Father God, we thank you uh, for your word. We thank you that we, uh, we have a community, uh, faith family, we get to gather with weekend, uh, a week out. We pray, Lord, that we would be changed and transformed because of the people around us, because of the work of Christ in our own lives and the work that we can spur others to. Lord, as we consider this morning the, the topic and the text at hand, I pray that you would uh, give us eyes to see, hearts to understand, uh, and a heart to love you. In the midst of all the persecution and all the things that your word says will be true of our lives, I pray that we'd be steadfast in our commitment, our faithfulness to you. Father, we love you. pray you help us this morning do all these things. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. In the study of scriptures and the study of uh, the, 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 the $5 word this morning is eschatology. Eschatology simply means the study of the end times. Uh, this morning's sermon is titled, Life at the End of the World. Life at the End of the World. How we think the world will end will shape how we live today. How we think the world will end will shape how we live in the world today. Let me show you what I mean. If you think the world will progressively get worse and worse and worse, you may be tempted to then pull back from engaging in such a society. However, if you think the world will get better and better and better, you might be more inclined to push all your chips in on the here and now. If you think the world may end uh, sometime uh, as the cycles between both uh, moves towards God and moves away from God, and at any time the Lord may enter in, then that changes how you will engage in the world today. And so we see in Mark chapter 13 that the disciples uh, asked Jesus a very simple, very straightforward question of when will the world end? How will we know it will end? Let's look. We'll, we'll read the text here in its entirety again. You look at it as I read it. Mark 13. Verse 1, and as he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. And as he sat on the Mount of Olives opposite the temple, Peter and James and John and Andrew asked him privately, Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are to be accomplished? And Jesus said to them, See that no one leads you astray. Many will come in my name, saying, I am he. And they will lead many astray. And when you hear wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. But be on your guard, for they will deliver you over to councils and you will be beaten in synagogues, and you will stand before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them. And the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations, and when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated for all 
by all for my name's sake. For the one who endures to the end will be saved. Jesus has just left the temple, as we've seen over the last few weeks, that uh, time and time again within the temple, he's teaching his disciples that something new is coming. Out with the old and, and in with the new. And then he goes round after round after round with the Pharisees and the Herodians and the Sadducees and the scribes, all the while trying to get them to see one thing, and that is who he is and what he's come to do. He then leaves the temple, as verse 1 tells us this morning. He, he leaves the temple. And then what begins in uh, chapter 13, we'll go through chapter 14, is what uh, theologians and, and scholars and people who study these kind of things called the, the Olivet Discourse. The Olivet Discourse. It's the second longest discourse that Jesus gives in the Gospel of Mark. And uh, if we're honest with ourselves this morning, it's one of the harder texts of Scripture. In the sense, because Jesus seems to time box himself in on when the end of the world will be. Uh, later on, we'll see next week that he says, uh, within one generation, he would come back in the clouds. And, and he didn't. So Christians for the last 2,000 years have, have struggled with how do we then interpret this? How do we, how do we know what, what to think or how to live? As a matter of fact, Bertrand Russell, who I miss, mentioned a couple weeks ago, would use this text as a full discreditation of the Christian faith. So he would look at this text and say, see, Jesus said he was coming back, and he didn't. Therefore, we know that it's all a, all a sham. But I want to focus this morning not on those eschatological issues necessarily, but focus on, on the person of Christ and what he's doing here. You see, oftentimes, you and I naturally, organically think of Jesus as, as Messiah. Right? When we engage the scriptures, we, 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 we naturally view Jesus as uh, the Messiah, the promised one, the, the coming Savior of the world. Uh, we often think of him as the Lord as well. Lord of all creation, the Lord who reigns in majesty and power and might. We naturally think of Jesus in that way. Some of us who are, uh, we may think of the three, the three roles that Christ wears as prophet, priest, and king. And we see that as natural. This is, when we think of Jesus, this is what we think of. But I wonder, how many of us, when we consider Jesus, think of him as our pastor? I wonder when we read the scriptures and we see Jesus, how often do we naturally see him as pastor? No doubt this is portrayed in the, uh, the motif or the theme of Jesus as the great shepherd, as we see in John chapter 10, the one who lovingly calls and cares for and protects his own. And as pastor, Jesus lovingly instructs us and warns us and gives us commandments to follow. Because he wants to preserve us. He wants to protect us. He wants to love us. And what we see in this passage this morning is Jesus as the pastor. Jesus as the one who gives loving instructions, lovingly warns and lovingly commands his followers. He isn't doing anything new. We've seen Jesus act this way before. But the context in which he is giving this pastoral advice is entirely new. Namely, the end of the world. Now, in our day and age, I think uh, the church age, by and large, has an, probably an overfixation on the end of the world. Uh, no doubt there are many, many books which talk about the manner and the timing in which Jesus will return. But notice what happens here in this text, because the, the questions of our day and age are, aren't unsimilar to the disciples and the questions that they asked Jesus. 
You see, I think even, G- even the disciples of Jesus seem to have this overfixation on, on the end days. How is this all going to wrap up? But notice what happens when, when the disciples ask. They ask what seems to be a pretty straightforward answer. When will these be? How will we know the signs of the time? But notice the instruction that he gives is not for some future event, but it's for the present reality. See, Jesus' answer focuses the disciples' attention not on some distant future, not on some latter day, but on faithful obedience in the here and now. Jesus' pastoral instruction here is structured under two commandments, under two uh, imperatives for his disciples, and the sermon this morning will be broken down into the two parts following that structure. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, I'm not telling you exactly when the end of the world will be, or how the end of the world will be, but I am telling you that the end of the world will be. He's saying, I'm not going to tell you when it will be or how it will be, but simply that it will be. As disciples of Jesus, you and I should see how we ought to live in light of the fact that the world will end. We should understand how we then ought to live today. So the command number one is found in verse five. He says, see that no one leads you astray, Verse 5, and then the second command is this command of being on guard. Look at verse 9, it says, but be on guard. Really, in the Greek, these are the same. These are the same commandments given to the disciples. Uh, It's the same verb, word, structure, playing out in different ways. See that no one leads you astray in being on guard. So let's take a look at this first one. See that no one leads you astray. It's natural that you and I want to know about the future. The disciples here wanted to know about the future. They want to know what's coming for them. They wanted to be able to see, as if it were, in the distance coming their way, the future. But Jesus' answer is on faithful obedience in the here and now, faithful obedience in the present. You see, I don't know if you're like this when you're watching movies, but how many of you, just, you don't have to raise your hand because I really don't like these kind of people, but how many of you, when you're watching movies, you just want to know what happens at the end? Like it's a psychological thriller or some kind of suspense movie. You're just like, oh, I just want to know what happens. Like, you ever watch a movie with these people? They're the worst ones to watch movies with because I just want to watch the movie. The movie will tell us what's going to happen. We just got to make it through. And I wonder if a reason why some of you all watch movies like that is because in some way, the, the knowing what's coming, knowing the end will help relieve the tension in the present. I don't know. Maybe talk to me afterwards if that's why you're like that. I don't know. Look at verse 1. As he came out of the temple, one of his disciples said to him, Look, teacher, what wonderful stones, what wonderful buildings. And Jesus said to him, Do you see these great buildings? There will not be left one here, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. Right? Understand, Jesus is walking out the temple. And one of his disciples was like, Man, look how awesome this is. And it's like Jesus is just like, I'm gonna crush that excitement right here. It's as if like, uh, like one of your kids came to you and said, Dad, Mom, look at how awesome this is. You just look at your kid and you be like, it's worthless. It cost me 12 cents. It's, it's not worth anything. It's, that's what Jesus is doing here. He's killing their excitement, not over something uh, that's worth merely 12 cents, but he's killing their excitement over the temple. You see, the temple, as we've talked about over the last few weeks, is the pride and joy of the Jewish faith. 
the Jewish faith would see and the Israelites would see a destruction of the temple almost as the end of the world. They would see it as, as something catastrophic to their own faith. And so Jesus says, these buildings, like, they're, they're worthless. They'll be thrown down. They're not going to be left here anymore. And as we know, the temple did come to an end in AD 70. Josephus, a historian, would tell us that some of these stones were 60 feet in length. 60 feet massive. We went over the size of the temple a few weeks ago, but just, just massive uh, temple. And, and what Jesus is saying here when he says that the, these stones will not be left upon another is that something catastrophic is about to happen. And so naturally, in verse 4, after having their excitement crushed, after having their, their joy over the temple and over the work of God in the temple, they want to know, well, when will that be? Look at verse 4. Tell us, when will these things be? What will be the sign when all these things are about to be accomplished? Notice they're asking about the future here. When will this happen? When will this happen? How will we know? But Jesus, in his response to this direct question of timing, shows he is giving pastoral instruction. Look at verse 5. And Jesus began to say to them, See that no one leads you astray. Jesus is saying, Watch out! Don't stray away. Stay awake. Listen. Pay attention. Wait a minute. This is the way we need to kind of read the Bibles and slow down. Does Jesus ever answer their question? He said, when's it going to happen? Jesus said, watch out! What? See that no one leads you astray. Watch out. Don't fall away. Stay awake. Listen. And then he says in verse 6, many will come in my name saying, I am he. It will lead many astray. And when you hear of wars and rumors of wars, do not be alarmed. This must take place, but the end is not yet. For nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be earthquakes in various places. There will be famines. These are but the beginning of the birth pains. What's Jesus saying here? The disciples want to know when is, when is this all going to wind down? When is the world going to end? How will we know the world is ending? And Jesus says, stay awake. If you think the Christian life is one of careless neglect, you might be one who would fall away. The Christian life is not one of ease and comfort and kicking our feet up. The Christian life is one of watchful anticipation. John Stott would say the solution to our problem lies not in knowing when he will come, but in staying awake and alert. The Christian life is not about ease. It's not about come to Jesus and all your problems will be solved. It's not about come to Jesus and get a better life. Come to Jesus and all your prayers will be answered. It's one of discipline and focusness and staying alert. Not being drug away, not falling away. You see, one of the as a pastor, one of the great fears of my life is you not making it to heaven, or you not having right standing with Christ, but you think you do. One of the great fears as a pastor is to think that there we are standing in the courtroom of heaven and I see you and you see me and you, you say, I know and love the Lord, I serve the Lord. And Jesus looks at you and says, depart from me. 
I never knew you. And the great fears of the pastoral role in office is that playing out. This is why I believe so much in the proclamation of the gospel. And I've said this before, and I'll, I'll say it again. Like, I pretty much just show up every Sunday morning and say the same exact thing to you week in and week out. I don't know if you've caught on to that. I just, I just show up and I keep saying the same thing. I just keep preaching the same gospel. That's why I believe in the proclamation of the gospel, because the proclamation of the gospel is what actually changes people. That's why I believe in the administration of the sacraments of the baptism and the Lord's Supper. That's why I believe in church discipline and not letting you simply fall through the cracks. Why? Because these are the ways in which I, as a pastor, help you not stray away. Well, you might be thinking to yourself, well, pastor, that will never be me. I'm good. I'll never stray away. I'll never lose faith. Look at verse 6 again. Is Jesus talking to disciples? Jesus says, many will come in my name saying, I am he, and they will lead many astray. Do you notice that? Many will be led astray. Many people, much maybe like you, say, I'll never, I would never, I'd never recant my faith. Many people will be led astray. That's why Jesus tells us to see that no one leads you astray. He says, see that no one leads you astray. I don't put it past anyone's ability to be led astray, not because the promises of God are fickle, but because sin is rampant. Like, if you think in your life and in your family that church is optional, or if you think that maybe it's not even needed, maybe all you need is you and your Bible, or maybe you think of Christianity as this lackadaisical fun experiment in the sun, listen, uh, I'm afraid that you might be one of the ones who get led astray. What I'm saying this morning is you should watch out. Not to put doubt in you, but to, to put a courage and a faithfulness to the, to the gathered body, to sitting underneath the preaching of the word, to put yourself in worship to the Lord. Not only does he tell us to watch out, but he also says be on guard. Look at verse 9. But be on your guard. He says not only to watch out, but to be on guard, to always have, as it were, your defenses up, always watching, always waiting, always vigilant. This is like in, in boxing, right? What's the number one rule in boxing, right? You keep your hands up. You, keep, you stay on guard. You keep your hands up, not to get knocked out. One commentator would say, uh, this passage could be translated, you must be clear in your own minds, clear-headed, thinking clearly, fully awake. This idea of being awake shows up five more times in this chapter, specifically right at the end of the chapter where Jesus is talking about the fact that no one actually knows the day or the hour. Therefore, stay awake, stay on guard, be vigilant, don't let your guards down. But notice, Jesus is not saying you should be awake so that you can avoid all the things. He's not saying pay attention so that you might avoid persecution, right? You keep your hands up in boxing so you don't get hit in the head. But that's not necessarily what Jesus is saying that we need to stay awake for. Jesus is not saying that you and I should run away from persecution and calamity, but rather that we should know that it is coming. And that we should not lose focus in the midst of trials, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of calamity. 
but rather continue in the trials to be faithful. That in the trials of walking out our faith in an unbelieving world, like we should know what's coming. And we should embrace it anyway. Verse 9, there will be persecutions. You'll be delivered over to council. You say, well, what is coming, Jesus? And this is what's coming. Persecutions are coming. They will deliver you over to the councils. They will beat you in the synagogues. And they will stand before, you will stand before governors and kings. And then you get kind of this weird verse, verse 10, where it's like, ah, but the gospel is going to be preached in all the world. Verse 11 then, and following trials, more persecution, brokenness in the family. What, What Jesus is saying is that there will be destruction and calamity and adversity in every area of your life, both religiously, politically, in the family. And he says, we need to be clear about this. All of this comes because of verse 10. He's saying that preaching the gospel is going to bring about these sorts of reactions. In other words, if you're going to be faithful to Jesus, everything here is a description then of your life. And it's coming. If you're going to be faithful to Christ, know that you're going to be hated in the political sphere. If you're going to be faithful to Christ, know that you're going to be hated in the religious sphere. If you're going to be, um, if you're going to be faithful to Christ, you may even be hated inside of your own family. And Jesus is saying, be on guard. Know that it's coming. And you and I read this through our American Western ears and, and eyes, and we say, like, yeah... I don't know that I've ever really experienced that, but know that our other brothers and sisters throughout church history and around the world even today would read this very different than us. You see, the people who Mark was writing to, mainly uh, Roman Christians who were under persecution, they would hear this very differently than you and I. They would hear it and they would know that they are continually under persecution in their own day, and yet you and I read this very differently. But even for us, for whom very little persecution actually comes, the principle holds true. There will be adversity for us if we are going to be faithful to Christ. There will be adversity for us if we are going to be faithful to Christ. So that's why C.S. Lewis and Mere Christianity would say, Aim at heaven, and you will get earth thrown in. Aim at earth, and you will get neither. What what Lewis was saying in this quote in Mere Christianity is that if you want what's actually good in the world, you look around and you say, I've got a lot of good things in my life. He says, if you really, really want to own those, really embrace those, really uh, have those, he says, don't look at them themselves because they're all shadows and, and fleeting substances. But the reality is, Christ himself in heaven. Therefore, aim to him. Look to him. Not to the things around you. The only way that we can be effective in this world as Christians, you and I, the only way that we can be effective in this world is when we find our center in Jesus. Think about it. We can only be effective when we find our center in Jesus. Now, notice what I'm not saying. I'm not saying, well, you find your center in your job. 
Do you find your center in your family? Would you find your center in anything else outside of Christ? Our center must be found in Christ if we're going to be effective in this world. You see, if we persevere till the end, then according to verse 13, we will be hated by all. But the person who perseveres will be the one who is saved. Now think about this with me for a moment. Jesus says, the one who goes through all this, if you, if you, if you persevere, you're going to be hated. But if you persevere, then you will be saved. What is Jesus saying? What is Jesus not saying here? Jesus is not saying that you and I can earn heaven. He's not saying, well, if you go through enough persecution, then we'll just give you heaven. We'll give you Jesus. But what he is saying is that our assurance that we are in Christ. Like, like have you ever thought, like, how do I know whether or not I actually believe the gospel? Have you ever thought that to yourself? How do I know that I actually believe all of these things? Have you ever thought that? We should. We should not to cause doubts in ourselves, but to, but to really get to the, to the crux and to the, the foundational level aspect of how do we know whether or not we truly believe in all of this. Jesus is saying here that you know you are in Christ, not because you bare knuckle, white knuckled it through persecution, but because if you persevere through persecution, then you know you are one of his disciples. Let me say it again. Jesus is not saying that we can earn heaven here. What he is saying is that enough persecution and enough trials, enough calamity, if you don't believe this, you're out. You won't, you won't stick around. You'll, you'll, you'll leave. When, when the, the cultural winds blow too hard against Christ and his word, you say, well, why fight it any longer? I don't really believe it anyway. Like, you think about like the American church today. One of the things I hear, being a younger pastor of older people, you guys, is that I find... Well, pastor, I remember the old days. The church would have been full on Sunday morning. What changed? Did the gospel change? Did Christ and his word, did, 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 did Jesus stop saving folks? No. What changed was the, the cultural winds of our time had no longer made it acceptable for you to actually sit in here unless you actually believe it. What Jesus is saying is that our assurance that you and I are in Christ, our assurance that we are one of his disciples, is our perseverance to the end. Your perseverance is your assurance that you belong to Christ. Jesus is promising to you that he is giving to you what you need to actually persevere. The book of Acts is said to be a real-life commentary on what is actually taking place in this passage. If you want to understand, like, well, what does this look like? Like, Jesus says all these things, calamities, all these persecution. What's that actually look like in practice? Read the book of Acts. One instance in particular is the stoning of Stephen in Acts chapter 7. In that chapter, you have the handing over of Stephen to the councils. You have the beatings in the synagogues, and you have the persecution. You have the adversity. And in Acts chapter 7, verses 
54 to 56, what we see, a little bit of context, is that Stephen is on trial before the Sanhedrin, the religious elite. And they've asked Stephen to say, what do you believe? Like, like, what do you think you know about this Jesus? What do you think you know about God the Father? And so Stephen tells them. He tells them all the things about Jesus. He, he recounts for them that it's through Christ alone that we are saved and all the things he believes about them. And then when he gets done with explaining who Jesus is, what Jesus has done, this is the reaction in Acts 7, verse 54 through 56. Now when they heard these things, all the things that Stephen just said were true about Jesus, when they heard these things, they were enraged, and they ground their teeth at him. But he, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God, and Jesus standing at the right hand of God, and he said, Behold, I see the heavens open and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. And this is powerful for you and I today. This is miraculous. Because this is the only time when, when, when the scriptures ever talk about Jesus being in heaven, when, Jesus, when it's talked about Jesus after his finished work, at the right hand of the Father, what's Jesus' posture always, every other time except this one passage in all the scriptures? He's sitting. He's sitting. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. The book of Hebrews would say that after he's finished his work, he's ascended to heaven and is now seated at the Father's right hand. And yet... Here, Jesus is shown standing at the right hand of God. Now, what the book of Acts is trying to do is trying to get you to see what's actually happening here. Because in in reality, there's two courtrooms here. You have the court on earth where Stephen is standing before the Sanhedrin, before the religious elite, about to be sentenced. But you also have the courtroom of heaven where Jesus is standing up for Stephen. And this is where justice really comes from. Now, the application for us today is simple. As Stephen stands up for Jesus, Jesus stands up for Stephen. Listen, Jesus is fighting for you. As Stephen looks to the heavens and he sees Jesus standing up for him, as he's standing up for Jesus, what we see is Jesus the judge is now Jesus the advocate. We see Jesus the King is now Jesus the Helper. And so thinking back about this in context of Mark chapter 13, 1 through 13, the only way that you and I can stand up for Jesus is because right now Jesus is standing up for you. The only way that you and I can stand up for Jesus is because right now Jesus is standing up for you. Now, you're thinking like, oh, that's awesome. Stephen looks to heaven, sees Jesus standing there. Do you know the end of this story? Do you know what happens to Stephen? He gets dragged out of the courtroom, and they stone him to death. So then, what good is it then if Jesus is standing up for you and they still kill you? The promise of Jesus standing up for you is not about this life. It's not about your comfort in this life. It's about persevering to the end. So Jesus is giving instruction here of how to live life at the end of the world. He says, bad things are going to happen. They're going to kill you. 
your own family may deliver you up to be killed. But listen, be on guard. Watch out. In, in our Calvary Foundations Church history uh, class, we just hit the Reformation period. So if you've missed, you're pretty far behind at this point. If you haven't been coming, we're up into the 15, 16, 1700s. Uh, this morning we talked about Martin Luther. Uh, but in two weeks we'll be talking about the English Reformation. And the more you study church history, the more you realize how gracious God actually is to us today. Like the more you study, the more you understand of how we ended up getting here today on the backs of martyrs and blood of the church. You're just mind blown that the God that we love and serve would be so gracious to us today. Not because we're awesome, but because he is. And one of the things that I love about the English Reformation is you have these two guys who are about to be put to death. Vladimir and Ridley. And being that we're in October, which is uh, Reformation Month, if anyone's familiar with church history. And as these two men are being led to their death by burning, you have Vladimir, who's, who's this old, frail man. But then you have Ridley, who's a younger, middle-aged man uh, in his prime. And as they're being led to their death by burning, Vladimir tells Ridley, he says, Be of good comfort. Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day, by God's grace, light such a candle in England as I trust shall never be put out. It was by their death that men and women in England, and perhaps even you today, hearing the gospel in English, hearing the preaching of the good news here in America today, by how God is moving. Well, what's the point now? Wrap this up. Here's the point. How we think the world will end will by and large affect how we think and how we live today. And as the disciples desire to know when it would end, how they would know when it would end, Jesus' instruction for them is that they would simply be on guard and watching out. So that they would maintain the faith. And so the application for us today is simple. The commands Jesus gave to his disciples is the commands that Jesus gives us today. As we await the second coming of our Christ and of our Savior, we should watch out. We should be on guard. No one here is above being pulled away. But if you persevere to the end, then you know that you are in Christ. Be on alert. Be on the watch. Make Jesus the center of your world because he is the center of your world, whether you accept it or not. Father God, we thank you this morning for who you are. But we are blown away by how much persecution, how much adversity, calamity, seems to come upon the early church, seems upon uh, that you promised even in the scriptures, and yet how little of it we actually experience today. Father, I pray we would be on guard. We would be on the lookout. That we would live our life in communion with one another and with communion with you. Constantly watching over our faith, over our practice, over our doctrines, Father so we would not be swept away. We would not gradually 
walk away from the faith. Lord, I pray we would continue to fix our eyes on you. We would turn our eyes to you, Father. Lord, I pray you would work in hearts in such a way this morning that those who don't know you would come to know you. Lord, I pray you would move in such a way that uh, this sermon preached today would build up the backbones of our faith in the years of persecution that may come. Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged and emboldened to share our faith, to live our faith, knowing that you are standing up for us. Lord, we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.